Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 6th. We'll begin with the uh, Siouxland's five-day forecast, and today will be um, patchy fog in the morning with clouds the rest of the day with a high of 54 and a low of 42. Wednesday will be breezy and it'll be clearing with a high of 57 with and a low of 45. Thursday will be uh, breezy and possibly a little rain in the morning with a high of 55 and a low of 33. Friday will be cloudy, breezer, and it'll be, be colder than it with a high of 39 and a low of 26. And Saturday is going to be cloudy with a high of 38 and a low of 23. Today's mini editorial is written by Shirley Stoll of Primgar, and Shirley writes, People have been trying to talk up a recession since 2020. If we are in or anywhere near a recession, could someone please tell me how anyone will be going to the Super Bowl this year? Tickets can run as high as $10,000 or more. And this again was written by Shirley Stoll from Primgar. Our first story uh, has the headline of Student Built Houses, and this was uh, written by Caitlin Yamada from the Sioux City Journal. The Sioux City Schools new construction trades program has progressed faster than expected, with two houses estimated to be completed this semester. This summer, the school district's Career Academy finished construction on a 12,000-square-foot addition to the Harry Hopkins Center located along Business Highway 75. Classes started in the fall with building a house for Habitat for Humanity, as well as a district-owned house. The district-owned house is more than 1,500 square feet and was originally expected to be completed over two years. Both houses have been progressing quickly, despite a slight delay in construction material arrival. On February 1st, the students were working on the siding of the district-owned house, with the next steps being insulation and drywalling. Rick Nile said they expect to be able to complete both houses this semester. Brothers Rick and Gary Niles teach the program. Rick is a retired federal probation officer and was teaching in the police science program at Western Iowa Tech Community College. And Gary was a chief juvenile court officer. They have built more than 200 houses together, including their own homes. There are 37 students in the program. This group is a mixture of juniors and seniors spending half of their day at the trade facility. Rick Nile said during the day, the students are broken up into groups to tackle different aspects of the project. They are graded on the day based on a variety of factors, including timeliness, cleanliness, tool care, attention, and so on. We've really learned to put kids in positions that fit their skill sets, Nile said. With the help of community businesses and local trade unions, the pair have been teaching the students the ins and outs of construction and the different opportunities available to them. With every product or material the students are going to work with, Niall said a YouTube video exists of someone explaining how the material works and how to install it. Often, the instructors will show the students videos so they understand why and how they are doing the installation. This is paired with the in-class instruction and the hands-on instruction to give a full view of what the project is. So far, Niall said many of the students love doing the roofing. Both Jamie Garcia and Jesus Ruiz said they enjoyed the roofing aspect of the project. Garcia, a junior at 
North High said she enjoys the program because it's completely hands-on. So far, her favorite part was framing the houses. It's where you're really learning this is real, and because it's where you start to learn, I can actually do this. This is an option, she said. Garcia hopes to join the electrical union after graduation. Before joining this course, she wanted to go into the welding career. Ruiz, a junior at North High, said he was taking a welding class when he heard about the construction program and decided to join. He also said his favorite part was framing and roofing the house. He is considering going into the electrical trade after high school. Ruiz said students should, look, should join the course and learn skills that may help them in the future or give them a different career opportunity. Omar Orozco Perez said he took the course because his dream job is buying and flipping houses. Niall said one of the more difficult parts of creating a program like this is figuring how long things are going to take compared to a traditional construction setting. He said they will be working to restructure their program for next year and implement other projects throughout the year to keep kids engaged, such as sheds and possibly other projects for the community. It makes us have to kind of change gears and figure out in years to come how we are going to configure that, Niall said. What other types of sheds or similar projects can we do to fill time, but also to get exposure to other types of things? Later this semester, the students will build a storage facility for the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center. Niall said the juniors currently in the course will be able to pick up a house project right away next year without learning safety, equipment, and how-tos. Just imagine by Christmas we could be this far or even farther on the house, he said. District administration visited other schools with similar programs, including Sioux Falls, Harrisburg, South Dakota, and Cherry Creek, Colorado, to model the program. Niall said in Sioux Falls, the students were building an elaborate playhouse out of scrap lumber to give students another opportunity to practice. At the end of the two-year program, the students will have received four different certificates, OSHA certification, and a construction management diploma. Our next article is written by Dolly Butts of the Sioux City Journal, and the headline is Cold Storage Warehouse Adding Jobs. A cold storage facility, which opened last summer in Sioux City's Southbridge Business Park, is creating 39 additional jobs through an expansion. The Sioux City Council, by voting in favor of its consent agenda Monday, approved a second amendment to the city's development agreement with Cold Link Logistics, a Florida-based cold storage company, to assist with the expansion. There was no discussion on the matter before the council voted. In July, Cold Link Logistics cut the ribbon on the 180,000-square-foot cold storage facility, a capital investment of more than $30 million. The facility employs 60 people and provides services to the regional food processing industry. According to city documents, Cold Link Logistics is adding approximately 154,000 square feet of cold storage capacity to provide additional capacity to customers such as Purdue Premium Meats and Wells Dairy. Under the Second Amendment to the Development Agreement, the company will add the extra cold storage capacity, hire 39 new employees, and commit to an additional minimum assessment of $15 million on the expansion, $40 million on the entire project. The city, in turn, will provide tax rebates equal to 75% of the new taxes created by the expansion project for a 10-year period. The rebate schedule is the same one the Council approved in the original development agreement, according to the documents. 
Coldlink Logistics was founded by brothers Michael, Mark, and Nick Mandage in 2020. According to the company's website, the Mandage Group owns and manages eight properties throughout the United States, with over 2 million square feet of cold and dry storage assets under management. Our next story headline is Reynolds Plants Another Border Deployment. After a weekend trip to Texas, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Monday she plans to, for a third time, send Iowa law enforcement officials to assist Texas authorities with security efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border. During a news conference Monday at the Iowa Capitol, Reynolds repeated her criticism of how Democratic President Joe Biden has enforced federal immigration laws and cast 12 other Republican governors at a news conference where she did not speak. Back Monday in Iowa, Reynolds said she is working with Texas authorities to once again send Iowa State Patrol officers and Iowa National Guard troops to aid Texas authorities with border security efforts. She said, For three years, Texas has been on the front line of the most serious national security and humanitarian crisis of our time, and Governor Abbott has led the response. Having no option but to protect itself, Texas is enforcing the law by denying illegal entry and detaining those who attempt it. If the federal government won't do the job protecting Americans, the states will step in. Reynolds said other states' assistance to Texas is needed because, she said, the federal government has not sufficiently addressed historical spikes in illegal migrant crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border. She attributed increases in fentanyl seizures, drug overdose deaths, and human trafficking to illegal immigration issues. The details of the pending deployment are still being worked out with Texas authorities, Reynolds said. It will be the third time Reynolds has deployed Iowans to assist Texas authorities with border security. In 2021, she dispatched 30 Iowa State Patrol officers. Last year, Reynolds sent 31 Iowa State Patrol officers and 109 Iowa National Guard troops for separate one-month deployments. The pending mission will again be funded by federal pandemic relief funding from the American Rescue Plan that Biden signed into law in 2021 and Reynolds opposed. Last year's deployment cost $2 million, according to the governor's office. Reporters have asked the governor's office for information on funding source for her travel to Texas this past weekend. It has The office has not responded as of Monday afternoon. Iowa National Guard has been deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border on three other occasions since 2020 in response to a separate federal request, the governor's office said. According to the Associated Press reporting on federal figures, arrests for illegal border crossings from Mexico reached an all-time high in December since monthly numbers have been released. The Border Patrol tallied 249,785 arrests on the Mexican border in December up 31% from November and up 13% from December 2022, the previous all-time high. Reynolds, as she has on multiple occasions in the past, cited the Biden administration's enforcement of border security policies, for which she blamed the influx of illegal border crossings. Biden has said there are limitations of what the president can accomplish without congressional action. Asked Monday to comment after the news conferences, the White House pointed to remarks Biden made January 30th to reporters. At that time, he said, I've done all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked from the very day I got into office. Give me the Border Patrol. Give me the people. Give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work right. 
Border security legislation is being considered in the United States Senate, but Reynolds declined when asked Monday to call for its passage, instead reiterating that she believes the Biden administration should be stronger in its enforcement of immigration policy. She also expressed doubt that the Republican-led U.S. House and Democrat-led U.S. Senate would reach an agreement. Both parties are guilty in not coming to the table, sitting down and having an adult conversation about what we do moving forward, Reynolds said. I don't have a lot of confidence in, no disrespect to the people that serve out in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful for them, but listen, in this environment, I don't have a lot of confidence in really too much getting done. Our next um, headline is Runoff into Missouri River Continues at Below Normal Pace, and this is an article written by Nick Hytrek of the Journal. One month into 2024, and runoff into the Missouri River has dropped further below normal levels. January runoff into the river basin above Sioux City was 0.4 million acre feet, 56% of average, leading the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to drop the annual runoff forecast from 20.1 million acre feet to 18.8 million acre feet, which is abbreviated MAF, 73% of the average of 25 MAF. The low January totals were due to temperatures that were well below normal over the whole river basin and below normal precipitation over much of the basin. The runoff into the reservoir system was well below average for the month of January, said John Remus, chief of the Corps Missouri River Basin Water Management Division. This fact, in conjunction with the below average plains and mountain snowpack, indicates a below normal runoff year for the basin. Mountain snowpack that feeds the upper river basin when it melts currently ranges just 51% to 64% of average. By February 1st, about 60% of the total mountain snowpack usually has accumulated. Uh, water storage in the river's six reservoirs remains below the flood control zone, and the Corps expects to begin the 2024 runoff season on March 1st at 52.7 MAF, below the flood control zone that starts at 56.1. To conserve water in the system, releases from Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton have been set at a winter rate of 13,000 cubic feet per second. Releases were increased to 15,000 cubic feet per second in mid-January because of sub-zero temperatures across the lower basin, but were reduced to 13,000 by the end of January and are expected to remain at that rate through February. A month or two of heavy precipitation can dramatically change runoff forecasts. A year ago, the Corps forecast 2023 runoff at 81% of average. The year ended with above-normal runoff after fall precipitation in some areas of the basin was above-normal. We now go to the um, regular feature for Tuesday's Five Questions With, and today is Nebraska artist Thurman Statham, who has a new exhibit at the Sioux City Arts Center. Omaha artist Thurman Statham isn't one to say any piece is ever truly finished. The 71-year-old artist said, the creative process never ends, even on a fixed work. That way of thinking and creating is something that appealed to Sioux City Arts Center curator Christopher Atkins as he was considering exhibiting Statham's work for a new show. Atkins said, When you spend time with Thurman's work, you realize that he does go back to older pieces and make slight changes to them. I really appreciate that. It's like nothing's ever finished. 
Atkins said the new exhibit of Statham's work, Novella, came together in part because Statham already had a piece in the Art Center's permanent collection called Rio de Invenero, which blends plate glass, hot hand-formed glass, aluminum plate, acrylic and oil paint, and silicone adhesive. We like to promote and kind of share what the artists in our permanent collection are doing when they're still around, Atkins said. Statham said, you usually have to kick the bucket to be in a museum or involved with something like this. I'm kind of humbled. Atkins also emphasized how much the Art Center tries to focus on some of the broader area's original artists. Even though Thurman lives in Omaha, people who live here in Sioux City don't really know his work very well. They might know his piece downstairs. So I I felt like we had a good opportunity to show a lot of things that nobody was really familiar with. Stanton was born in Winter Haven, Florida in 1953, but grew up in Washington, D.C. and studied at the Rhode Island School of Design, the Pilchuck Glass School in Washington, and the Pratt Institute of Art and Design in New York City. He said he hung out at the Smithsonian a lot as a kid, and that developed his way of thinking about art centers as community tools. The idea of community comes up a lot in speaking with Statham, as does the notion of advocacy, which he considers at least half of his practice. In the past, that advocacy has included workshops with a focus on social change and working with people of all ages to instill in them the idea that art can allow a person to better explore their environment. The other half of Statham's practice, the making of the work, features an array of material, Two of the most common mediums are glasswork and painting. Some of the structures Stantums created are massive and can fill entire rooms. One for the Tampa Museum of Art is big enough to walk through. According to him, a towering three-dimensional structure in the novella exhibit took at least a month with three people to actually put together. The work is heavy. The big painting wears 400 weighs 400-some pounds. It's a pain in the neck to move, so I get grumpy at it, Statham said. Statham's show at the Sioux City Arts Center debuted with a reception on Thursday, February 1st, and will continue through July 14th. Statham chatted with the journal for our latest installment of five questions. Comments have been edited for length and clarity. And the first question, what are your thoughts about this new exhibit of yours? And the answer, I'm excited. I'm just excited to be here, just coming and having the show, working with the staff at the museum, revisiting Sioux City, all of it. It's just pretty exciting. The show is a good show, and Christopher Atkins did a really good job curating it. And from the process, I've gotten insights and ways of thinking about the work. From doing the show and just from being here and learning, I've got ideas I would like to implement at a later date. Next question, why is glass as a medium so intriguing to you? Answer, it's almost like painting with light, painting in the air. I wanted the paintings to have a temporal lifetime of sorts, and I think glass kind of becomes that. It's translucent. It can be opaque. It can be filled out three-dimensionally. It can be blown. It can break. So I think there's issues of structure and fragility. That structure, that three-dimensional glass wall structure, weighs tons. It's amazing it can have that level of integrity. Next question. How do you arrive at the titles for your works? Uh, The titles, they're very much about poetry. 
In our language, they're kind of mundane names. What they mean is not as important as what they feel like, and that's a way to introduce a visual through verbal. It creates associations. I don't want the work to be explained. I want the people that come to see the work to bring their sensibilities and to be comfortable with that. What has been the biggest changes in your work over time? I could not answer that one in the next hour. Probably the biggest change has been within each piece, you look for something more and there have been uphills and downhills. And I like to think that learning to deal with the fact that people could buy your work has been a challenge, making a living from it or not. When I worked and had jobs, when I went to the studio, there was unrestricted freedom that I valued. I think that becoming an advocate has been a big change. I've always thought of the work from the point of view of advocacy early on, simply because there weren't many people of color in my fields of glass and ceramics, and it became kind of an instinct. I think I'm much more diverse in materials and investigative in terms of the whole process. I started off as a craftsperson, and I do carry those values into being a paid sculpture person. How things are done is as important as what they are. And the last question. Where would you like to see your work go? Right now, I'm very interested in making things about culture. I love the idea of working with corn as a creative material and working with glass as a creative material. I kind of think that working with corn will help me grow in a different way. The corn palace thing has me going. It's kind of like the beginning of an unexpected journey that probably won't materialize for a while. But you know, one of the best things about working with corn is there's a lot of it here and so it would not be too expensive to get. We'll now move to some quotes from the news of the last week. The first one is from Iowa Representative Stephen Holt, who's a Republican from Denison, on legislation that would prohibit taxpayer-funded basic income programs in Iowa. And the quote is, We need to foster hard work and independence, not dependence on government through programs. There, the next one is from Sac County Attorney Ben Smith on the demoralizing effect of online criticism, criticisms lobbed at law enforcement in the search for missing Wall Lake, Iowa trucker David Schultz. And his, he said, they are not robots. They are not without feelings. The next one is from Candace Cook on the settlement of a federal lawsuit she brought against Randolph, Nebraska, over the city's efforts to remove her dog, Rufus, under their dangerous dog ordinance. And she said, he's licensed now with the city, which is what I wanted in the first place. And then the next one is from Ron Rick, Woodbury County Law Enforcement Authority Chair on the progress of the new law enforcement center. And he said, our main focus right now is to get that building completed, to get the sheriff's office, to get the people out of the current LEC to the new LEC. And then the last one is from Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, Iowa, chair of the Iowa House Education Committee, in an announcement that an AEA overhaul bill will not move forward. And he said, I have felt compelled to work this issue because this is about our kids and we have to get it right if we are to make changes. Sioux City Council okays grant application for road work. The Sioux City Council, by voting in favor of its consent agenda Monday, approved a resolution supporting a grant application to the Iowa Department of Transportation's Revitalize Iowa Sound Economy, or also called RISE, program for the construction of a roadway to support a new water park. 
Siouxland Splash 3820 Highway 75 is slated to be open for business by the summer of 2025 and is under design by a team of water park consultants. Sioux City currently has several public pools and splash pads, but no water parks. An Iowa DOT review determined that turn lanes in both directions will be required to safely allow traffic to decelerate and make the turn from Highway 75, which is under the DOT's jurisdiction, to the water park. Siouxland Splash's site plan also requires a short access road connecting the entrance to the turn lanes to be built on Highway 75, according to city documents. The engineer's estimate for construction of the road is $1,375,925, and the estimate for the turning lanes is $1,125,988. No, $1, the RISE program now offers funding to road projects from a newly created tourism category. All of the roadway and related drainage improvements needed for Siouxland Splash are eligible for RISE funding, according to the documents. If the city's application is approved, the RISE program will provide 50% of eligible project costs up to $1,250,957. The local match required from the city at 50% percent would be $1,250,956. The Iowa DOT Commission will consider the city's application for RISE funding at its March meeting. On January 22nd, the council voted unanimously to accept Frontline Development, LLC's proposal to purchase land on Highway 75 for the development of the multi-phase water park. During that meeting, Joe Zering, partner and co-owner of Frontline Development, said the park will have a lazy river, wave pool, and one of the biggest kid zones in the Midwest. We are going to have a huge slide tower with actually a really iconic slide. It's going to be the first one in the United States, Zering said. We're going to really try and make a big impact for Sioux City here. We want to make this a really fun staple in the community. The city is negotiating a development and minimum assessment agreement with the park's investors. Under the terms of the agreement, as currently proposed, Siouxland Splash would purchase roughly 10 acres at the site at a cost of $22,946 per acre. The group of investors would make a payment of $100,000 at closing and the balance would be paid over 10 years for a total of $229,460. Siouxland Splash LLC would commit to paying up to $250,000 toward a proportional share of the street improvements and regional stormwater pond to serve the site. The group would also enter into a minimum assessment agreement of $7 million beginning January 1, 2026, which would continue for 10 years. In addition to selling Siouxland Splash LLC, the 10 acres, the city in turn would provide partial 75% property tax rebates of the new incremental taxes created by the value added to the property. Tax rebate assistant is estimated at $1.7 million over 10 years. The road improvements for an entrance to the site are also part of the proposed development agreement, which states that the city intends to apply for Iowa DOT RISE grant funding for the improvements. The city would also construct a regional stormwater pond to serve the site at an estimated cost of $367,000, complete the construction of the sanitary sewer line project, and give Siouxland Splash LLC the option to purchase the remainder of the 42-acre site to accommodate future phases of the water park or related development.
year-round daylight savings time dies in Nebraska. Nebraskans will keep changing their clocks twice a year for the foreseeable future after Monday's defeat of a legislative bill seeking to set the stage for year-round daylight savings time. State senators voted 25-14 to 14 against first-round approval of Legislative Bill 143 after first refusing 2519 Bayard Senator Steve Erdman's amendment to impose year-round standard time as early as this summer. Senators Mike Jacobson of North Platte, Brian Hardin of Gehring, and Tom Brewer of Gordon supported Erdman's alternative, but Senator Teresa Ibach of Summer voted no. After Erdman's effort failed, all five Western Senators voted against the year-round daylight saving time bill, killing the measure. Americans in 48 states will move their clocks ahead an hour this year on March 10th, and then back again an hour again on November 3rd. The Daylight Saving Time Bill is unrelated to Legislative Resolution 276, a non-binding resolution sponsored by IBAC asking Congress to move Nebraska's Mountain Central Time Zone line west to the Colorado and Eastern Panhandle borders. LB 143, introduced in 2023 by former Senator Tom Brees of Albion, would have committed Nebraska to impose year-round daylight savings time if at least three bordering states passed similar laws and either Congress or the U.S. Department of Transportation makes that move possible. Lincoln Senator Danielle Conrad, a co-sponsor of the bill, took over as LB 143's champion after Brees resigned last October to become straight state treasurer. First round debate on the bill resumed late Monday morning with Erdman telling colleagues that Nebraskans' only chance to stop changing their clocks in March and November was to vote for year-round standard time. If you believe that LB 143 passes without my amendment, that is It's going to mean something. You're totally wrong, he said. It's the same as doing absolutely nothing, because Congress tried this in 73, and it did not last. Congress approved year-round daylight saving time in December 1973 during an Arab oil boycott. It took effect January 6, 1974, but was rescinded that October after multiple nationwide reports that children were being hurt or killed in traffic wrecks as they went to school in the darkness of early winter. The Federal Uniform Time Act of 1966, which started the nation's annual spring forward and fall back routine, left states the option to choose year-round standard time instead. Only Arizona and Hawaii currently do. Keeping DST in the warm months would be better for uh, Nebraskans' health and safety than going to year-round daylight saving time, Erdman said. Permanent daylight saving time is the worst option from that perspective. Wyoming voted for a similar conditional year-round daylight saving time bill in 2020, as did Colorado in 2022. But Erdman said Wyoming lawmakers now are looking at repealing their move and imposing year-round standard time. Had Nebraska done likewise with Colorado and Wyoming still on part-year daylight saving time, the state's mountain time counties would have fallen an hour behind both states and the rest of Nebraska from mid-March to early November. Interstate 80 and 76 motorists between North Platte and Julesburg, Colorado, would have had to change their clocks twice in a 50-mile stretch between the Lincoln-Keith County line and the state line. I-80 motorists between North Platte and Cheyenne would have two clock changes within about 150 miles. Erdman acknowledged the fact, but he said, I don't think it makes any difference when you're going 150, 200 miles across the state. People understand that. They'll get used to it. 
Jacobson said he decided to back Erdman's year-round standard time move after receiving many emails and communications from his District 42 constituents. Moving clocks forward and backward. People are sick of it, he said. People are telling us loud and clear, we don't want to do this anymore. But lawmakers from other parts of Nebraska balked at Erdman's alternative. Senator Joni Albrecht of Thurston, whose northeast Nebraska district lies near both South Dakota and Iowa, said year-round standard time would disrupt her area's trade with those states and wreak havoc on Nebraska broadcasters' programming schedules. Well, we're all going to find out. We all live in different parts of the state and all have different needs, she said. Senator Julie Slama of Sterling said year-round daylight time is a federal issue, but moving to a year-round standard time without nearby states following suit would hurt Nebraska. We will be on an island, she said. We will have a different time zone than all of our surrounding states. There will be no continuity. We'll be on our own. Albion Senator Frederick Meyer, who replaced Bracey November 15th, spoke against making any changes in Nebraska's clock-changing routine. He, Meyer said, if only things in our lives were as simple as changing our clocks twice a year, I know my life is much more complicated than that. There's much bigger issues than changing clocks. I think this issue is a much to do about nothing. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 6th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to the obituaries for today. Kathy Marie Hansen, 75, of Lamars, died Thursday, February 1st at Floyd Valley Healthcare in Lamars. Celebration of Life will be at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 10th at the Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Visitation with the family present starts at 9 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Maurer and Johnson Funeral Home are in charge of arrangements. Leroy J. Laring, 84, of Sioux City, passed away on Tuesday, January 30th, at his residence. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is assisting the family with arrangements. Gordon Charles Freud, 93, of South Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, February 1st, at his home. Abiding by his wishes, cremation has taken place, and a memorial service will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8th, at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home, with Reverend James Travis as officiant. Interment will be at a later date in the Dakota City Cemetery. Visitation with the family present will be one hour prior to services on Thursday. Honorary bearers will be Jeremy Baker, Brooke Atkins, Matt, Daniel, and Sarah Freud, Amy Freud, and Nathan Bradshaw. Gordon was born on May 15, 1930, in Lyons, Nebraska, to Lester and Helga Freud. He graduated from the Lyons, Nebraska High School. Gordon married Nora LaVon Bowman on September 1, 1950, in Blair, Nebraska. The family farmed in the Lyons area until 1964 when they moved to South Sioux City. Gordon worked at Sioux Tools for 36 years, and after retiring, he worked part-time at Krager Glass and BNSF Railroad. Gordon loved doing yard work and won Yard of the Month several times. He was mechanically inclined and could fix anything. Gordon was a big fan of the Nebraska Huskers and Dodgers baseball team. He loved spending time with his family and his dog Toby and wife of 73 years. And that concludes the obituaries. Our next headline is Nebraska Student Shares Prize for Translating Ancient Scroll. 
after becoming the first person in nearly two millennia to read from a papyrus scroll salvaged from the ruins of Pompeii. A University of Nebraska-Lincoln student is now sharing the grand prize for his efforts. Luke Ferreter, a senior in the UNL's Jeffrey S. Rake School of Computer Science and Management, is among three people who will share the $700,000 grand prize for the Vesuvius Challenge. Along with Joseph Nader and Julian Schillinger, Ferreter successfully deciphered the four passages of text, each with 140-plus characters, from the, her, the scrolls before the December 31st deadline, the Vesuvius Challenge announced on Monday. In fact, Ferreter and his partner submitted 15 passages that included more than 2,000 characters, an estimated 5% of the scroll's text, far exceeding what organizers of the challenge figured was possible. The 21-year-old Lincoln native said, Sometimes we take breakthroughs such as this for granted, but we should not. It took the combined efforts of many people over several centuries to discover, preserve, scan, and now finally read and translate these scrolls. It is a privilege of a lifetime to be a small part of this. Last fall, Ferreter told the journal Star he became interested in cracking the code on the scrolls during a 2023 internship with SpaceX. Buried in a library near Pompeii in 79 AD, after Mount Vesuvius erupted and covered the ancient Roman town in volcanic ash and mud, the scrolls were discovered in the 1750s but have remained unopened due to their brittle nature. Two decades ago, Brent Seals, a computer science professor at the University of Kentucky, developed a process allowing researchers to x-ray scan the scrolls layer by layer and later developed a method for detecting the presence of ink on the charred papyrus. By developing an algorithm capable of detecting the faint differences in texture on the scrolls, Ferreter was able to identify 10 Greek letters in close proximity, which experts later determined spelled the word purple, winning him the first letter's prize and with it $40,000. The discovery from Ferreter, Nader, and Schellinger uncovered a tract likely penned by Philodemus, a philosopher living in Herculeum, who wrote what experts said was a 2,000-year-old blog post about how to enjoy life. Richard Janko, a, a papyrologist who examined the team's submission, said the passages detected by the winning team discuss the pleasures derived from music and how it compares to other joys in life, including food, drink, and beautiful sights. Janko said the passage, written by a proponent of Epicureanism, which places a high value on pleasure and avoiding fear and pain, also takes a shot at the rival school of Stoicism for having nothing to say about pleasure, either in general or in particular, when it is a question of definition. Ferreter said he hopes the breakthroughs from the Vesuvius challenge will help further the amount of text available to historians from the Greco-Roman era. Approximately 800 scrolls retrieved from the ancient library, thought to be owned by Julius Caesar's father-in-law, are in Naples, Italy, waiting to be read, while thousands of others are likely still buried at the site. Ferreter said he plans to continue improving his machine learning model to help uncover more passages put down in ink. We are celebrating right now, but there's no reason to slow down, he said. Let's read the entire library. And we now move to some um, news from the Iowa legislature. LGBTQ Iowans rally again at the Capitol. 
Courtney Ray, speaking to dozens of LGBTQ Iowans and advocates gathered at the Iowa Capitol on Monday, called this year's legislative session a roller coaster and lamented what she described as a need to keep coming to the Capitol defend LGBTQ Iowans' rights. Ray's executive director of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa kicked off a rally Monday at the Iowa Capitol during a day of LGBTQ advocacy. She said, This has been just a roller coaster of a session, pointing to last week when one legislative proposal to change the way transgender Iowans are protected under the state Civil Rights Act failed to advance, and on the next day, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds introduced new legislation that would define man and woman in state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. Ray said after that huge win with the failure of the proposed Civil Rights Act changes, another piece of harmful legislation was introduced by the governor of our state. We call it the Trans Erasure Bill. It's harmful and just pure evil. When she introduced her proposal last week, Reynolds called the legislation common sense and said it protects women's spaces and rights. She compared it to state law passed in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls' and women's athletics. The bill allows the law to recognize biological differences while forbidding unfair discrimination, Reynolds said last week in a statement. Multiple Democrats lawmakers have spoke, also spoke at the uh, the rally. Just prior to Monday's rally, a legislative hearing was held Monday morning on a proposal to prohibit schools from disciplining any teachers who refuse to use a student's preferred pronouns. The proposal, House File 2139, advanced on the support of the two Republicans on the subcommittee panel, Representative Henry Stone of Fourth City and Bill Gustav of Des Moines. Supporters of the legislation, including the Christian conservative advocacy group The Family Leader and two mothers, said the proposals needed to protect educators' freedom of speech and religion. One of the mothers said she she teaches her children that there are only two genders, each has its own pronoun, and that teachers using a student's preferred pronoun is indoctrination. Seven students or parents of transgender children spoke in fierce opposition to the proposal. Many of them pointed out that last year, State House Rep. Republicans passed legislation that requires parents to notify educators about their approval of their child using a different name or pronoun, and are now proposing legislation that would allow teachers to ignore that. What about protecting my parents' rights, Barry Stevens, a 13-year-old student who uses they and them pronouns, asked during the public comment portion of the hearing on the proposal. They filled out the notification. Now you're saying that doesn't matter. Teachers can now just choose to ignore that. If teachers can't handle basic dignity for all, then they have no business teaching in public schools. Say no to this bill and go pick on someone your own size, Stevens said. By advancing out of subcommittee, House File 2139 now is eligible for consideration by the full House Education Committee. We'll now move to the sports section and we'll begin with uh, Sioux City Musketeers. The Sioux City Musketeers split a pair of games last weekend. The Muskies scored three times in the third period to down Omaha 5-2 to two on Friday. Omaha held a 1-0 first period lead on a goal from Justin Stupka. Brian Nicholas scored on the power play shortly after the start of the second period, and when Alexei Van Houty Kachiro found the back of the net at 12.46, Sioux City held the lead for the first time. Trey Scott's second goal of the season made it 2-2 right before the end of the second. Colin 
Kessler, Tate Pritchard, and Caden Shahan scored third-period markers as the Musketeers claimed their 23rd win of the season. Shahan's goal is his league-leading 26th of the year. Dylan Silverstein stopped 26 shots to pick up his fifth victory in 2023-24. A four-goal game from rookie forward John Mustard was the story of as Waterloo downed the Musketeers 6-2 on Saturday. Mustard, who leads all USHL rookies with 38 points on 21 goals and 17 assists, gave the host Blackhawks a 1-0 lead when he scored at 1:09 of the opening period. Goals from Tyler Miller and Mustard made it 3-0 in the second. Max Strands responded for the Musketeers at 13.07, but Mustard scored right before the end of the period as Waterloo regained his three-goal cushion. Teddy Townsend made it 5-1 midway through the last period of regulation, and Caden, Shahan's league-leading 27th goal of the season, made it 5-2. Mustard closed it out when he scored into an empty net at 17-10. Jack Spicer had 25 saves as Waterloo won its 23rd game of the season. Despite the loss, Sioux City remained in second place of the USHL Westerns division. Ahead of third place Waterloo, uh, Fargo leads the division. We'll now move to high school wrestling. Two metro area wrestling teams qualified for the state duels tournament and both walked away with the best finish in their respective school's history. Sergeant Bluff Luton took second in Class 2A after losing a 36-33 thriller to Creston in the title match. The Warriors, who entered the state duels as the number five seed, knocked off fourth-seeded West Delaware in the first round and top-seeded Osage in the semifinals. It was the 10th time the Warriors have qualified for Team State and 6th straight trip, but the school's first championship duel appearance. For the season, SBL finished 20-1 to in duels. Hinton qualified for the state duels for the first time last season, losing his three matches to finish 8th. On Saturday, the Blackhawks did one better by bouncing back from losses in their first two duels to win the seventh-place duel against Lake Mills. Sergeant Bluff Luton, whose third-place finish last season had been the school's previous best placing, avenged last year's loss to West Delaware in the semifinals. In finding victory this time around, the Warriors not only beat West Delaware for the first time in program history, but top defending state champion Osage for the first time as well. In both the semifinal and the title duels, SBL entered the final bout with the score tied 33-33. In the semifinals against Osage, SBL junior Xavion Ellington had a main character moment by playing the hero and defeating Mac, Max Gass by a narrow 3-0 margin. The fifth-ranked Ellington scored on a takedown a little over a minute into the match and tacked on an escape in the closing seconds. It felt great to get that win, Ellington said. My teammates are all working hard, and they really gave me some confidence going into that match against Osage. We've never experienced anything like this as a team at SBL. Lineup adjustments against Osage paid off for head coach Clint Coldham. Most of his regulars in the lineup between 150 and 175 wrestled up a weight class to help set up the dramatic finish. One of the best things about these tournaments is that it gives you an idea about how you match up against other teams from around the state, Coldham said. Xavier know where he's at now. Anytime you put a kid in a different situation against good comp- competition, it makes you better for the next time. In the championship duel, Creston's Jager Luther came up with a 7-1 decision over SBL's 
Will Ryan to break the tie and gave Creston its first state dual title. The Warriors had five wrestling goals for th- three wins each in as many matches. Freshman lightweight Drake Howard recorded three bonus point wins, as did seventh-ranked senior Ethan Skogland at 126 and junior Bo Holdem, who went for three pins wrestling between 157 and 165. We have some hammers on that back half, said Bo Kodum, who's 41-2 and ranked second at 157. That ultimately won us some duels. We finally got the win over West Delaware. We've never done that before. We just go out there and try to do our jobs and score as many points as possible for our team. Sophomore Jace Curry, ranked 12th, complied three compiled three victories at 113 for SBL, and the Warriors got three wins from Ellington as well. Once we hit 106, we really get into the strength of our lineup, Clint Colden said. It's not always fun playing catch-up in these duels, but minimizing mistakes is what separates winners from losers sometimes, and our guys did a phenomenal job of doing what they were supposed to do. Now for Hinton, in his first two duels, Hinton, the eighth seed, fell to second-seeded Wilton and seventh-seeded Jessup. Against Lake Mills, Hinton trailed 19-6 at one point, but rallied to win six straight matches and take its first lead at 27-23 with one match left. Junior Gabe Anderson, ranked ninth at 175, gave the Blackhawks the lead with a pin of Lake Mills' Josiah Jalsdahl midway through the second period of their match at 175 pounds. It was also Anderson's 100th career win. We wrestled like we like we're capable of and we have the attitude we normally wrestle with said Henton head coach Casey Crawford we're normally a pinning team but we couldn't get very many pins and we found ways to get three points at a time junior Jacob Bishop closed the door in Lake Mills with a pin of Andrew Grothov within the first 30 seconds of the second stanza while both teams have turned in highly successful seasons in the recent past Hinton and SBL stand to bring back a sizable chunk of their lineups next season I think we lost some people's respect after last year because we graduated so many quality seniors, Clint Coldham said. We have a ton of new faces in our lineup, and some of their resumes aren't super impressive, but that makes this team pretty special. It was a lot of our guys' first time wrestling in this environment. They're an underdog group. We talk about being the best version of yourself, and our older guys really brought the younger guys along. We have some guys that don't know different programs who's ranked on the other team. They just know they're wrestling some other guy in a singlet, and sometimes that's the best thing on the planet. For Hinton, junior heavyweight Taylor... Tyler Chastine and 190-pounder Jacob Bishop went for three pinfalls each, and 11th-ranked 165-pound sophomore Jackson Kunkel went for two wins and a decision. Ninth-ranked junior Mark Gant had two wins at 144, as did junior Brogan Lake at 157. Crawford said, we just like being on the mat. Every year, it seems like we're getting a little bit better, and we We'll bring a lot of our lineup back, so maybe we can come back down here and try to one-up ourselves again. We'll now move to Dear Abby and our first letter. My husband and I have been married for three years, together for eight. We have two kids together. Over the last year, he has changed a lot and has treated me very badly. He's always frustrated with me, accusing me of not caring about him and things of that nature. He puts me down by saying I think I'm a good person, but I'm not. I noticed the changes in him and suspected he might be having an affair or using drugs. Turns out that he has been using drugs. I told him from the beginning that if he touched this certain drug, I would show him the door. 
He finally admitted the truth, but only because his older brother told me and he had no choice. He has a great job, which he quit after he refused a drug screen. I'm so upset and hurt by his lies and the drug abuse. He has been moved out for a little over a week now and hasn't even asked about the kids. Do you think this is grounds for a divorce, or should I try to help him through his addiction and let him come back home? Signed, Addict's Wife in Texas. And Abby responds, Is your husband still jobless? Has he told you that he loves you and wants to come back? Is he willing to join a support group and get help for his addiction? If the answers are no, then please realize that the only person responsible for overcoming his addiction is himself, not you. And yes, I think this may be grounds for divorce. Unless you want those children living under the same roof with a verbally abusive drug addict who shows no interest in them. Dear Abby, I love my father, but I'm sick of trying so hard with him. When we used to spend time together, he would ignore me if I spoke, but respond if my husband said the same thing right after me. If he did act like he heard me, he'd just grunt or act disinterested in what I said. Now, if I try to contact him, he doesn't answer my calls or texts, and I feel like I'm bothering him. If I don't contact him, he tells everyone I never call and that I keep my kids from seeing him. Lately, he has been spreading a rumor that I went into his house and stole family items. His house has an alarm and stays locked. I also live several hundred miles away. He refuses counseling and denies any responsibility for conflicts in his relationships. I'm tired of the emotional anguish and games. My mom, who divorced him decades ago, wants me to keep trying because she cherished her relationship with her own, now-deceased father, so much. Do I honor my mother and keep trying, or should I put my foot down and let my mother know I refuse to be abused this way? Signed, Can't Win in Tennessee. And the response, Your mother was smart enough to get away from your father, whose behavior is abusive. Explain to her, it's surprising she hasn't already noticed, that your relationship with him is opposed to the one she enjoyed with her own father. It's unfortunate that the relationship you have with your dad isn't healthy for you, and it certainly will not benefit your children to see you treated the way he has been treating you. So, if you are asking my permission to keep your distance from your father, you have it. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 6th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you so much for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.